You're listening to the Goop Podcast, made possible by our friends at Burt's Bees. You know how some harsh skin products can feel like they're stripping your skin? Or on the flip side, how other products leave your skin feeling super greasy? If you've been in either boat before, you'll appreciate Burt's Bees' line of sensitive skincare. Their fragrance-free cleanser is loaded up with Goop-approved ingredients like cotton extract and aloe vera, and their gentle moisturizers seem to melt into your skin and leave it feeling softer. But I think people fall for Burt's Bees' sensitive skincare line because it's effective, and it can turn a mundane morning routine into a welcome kind of ritual. Also, talk about convenient. All you need to do is pop into your corner drugstore to find it. Easy. Learn more on burtsbees.com skincare. That's Burt's, B-U-R-T-S, bees.com slash skincare. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Hey guys, Elise Lunen here. Today continues our In Goop Health series. If you're joining for the first time, welcome. We're going to be sharing a conversation I recently had at our Wellness Summit in New York. If you heard my InGoop Health interview last week, thanks for coming back. If you still like what you're hearing, you might want to check out our next summit in Los Angeles on May 18th. Tickets are up at InGoopHealth.com, and I'd love nothing more than to meet in person. But for now, this works. Some of you may be familiar with today's guest already because she's an all-around badass. Despite having her right leg amputated at age five, Bonnie St. John became the first African-American ever to win medals in Winter Olympic competition. She also graduated magna cum laude from Harvard and earned a Rhodes Scholarship to Oxford. She served in the White House as a director of the National Economic Council during the Clinton administration. Today's chat is mostly about Bonnie's book, Micro Resilience, Minor Shifts for Major Boosts in Focus, Drive, and Energy. I'm a fan of both how simple and effective Bonnie's toolkit is when it comes to small tweaks that yield big results. Bonnie's toolkit is simple and effective. It's really about those tiny tweaks that yield big results. It's very useful and practical information for juicing just a little bit more out of every day. The more helpable person can do more and can, you can be larger. You can have more impact, but it might take a little patience. If you give some people some decision authority, you might have to coach them a little bit. You might have to, you know, help them get ready, but it's an investment that will make you larger than if you just hold on to everything. All right, time for you guys to meet Bonnie St. John. One thing I loved in the intro 
I think it's in the intro to the book, you write, not everyone should have to work so hard to come to the conclusions we've come to here, which I just loved, because I feel like in our culture, there's, everyone feels like they need to do it themselves. It's like, don't climb on each other's shoulders, don't help each other. So I love that that was the starting sentiment. Well, and I was such a drive yourself until you drop person. You know, I was, I competed in the Olympics. I've written all these books. I went to Harvard. You know, I was always driving, driving, driving and pushing yourself until you fall over and then you go, see how tough I am? And it was hard for me to learn a different paradigm for high performance, that you can create sustainable high performance, and you actually get more done. It's actually not about pulling the throttle back. I'm still a high performer. I still like to do a lot, but I'm better at creating recoveries along the way. Right, which is really sort of the, the foundation of this book. So can you, what is in your personal toolkit? <sighs> You know, it's interesting. Like I said, this doesn't come naturally to me. So it took me a while to learn it and to really build the habit. So it's all, micro-resilience is all about little hacks that have a big impact. And so the ones that, that have meant a lot to me too are exercising in the morning in order to have high performance. So for example, a lot of times people will say, I'm going to exercise for my health. I'm going to do it four times a week, and I'm going to put on my Lululemon, and I'm going to go to my Pilates class, you know, and that's what it looks like to be healthy. But there's research that shows if you do a little bit of exercise, you'll be smarter for hours afterwards. So whereas normally you would say, I exercised yesterday, I'll exercise tomorrow, but today I have a big meeting, so I'm just going to focus on that. That's the macro, macro perspective, but from a micro perspective, you would say, I'm just gonna get a little bit of exercise today. I may not be in the studio with my trainer, but if I walk for 20 minutes or I just do my stretchy bands for 10 minutes, which I did this morning, I'll be smarter for hours afterwards. So it's a different paradigm about doing exercise for different reasons, and I do that a lot. So if I have a lot of writing to do on a book, I'm gonna make sure I get a little bit of exercise before I start that day, instead of saying, I, I can't, I don't have time for that. It's like, I don't have time not to do that. Right. And the book is full of these sort of small shifts that, uh, that help. So one is something that I know women in general struggle with, but I think you suggest that everyone, particularly at work, finds this to be a stumbling block, which is boundaries. And creating zones, creating opportunities to get uninterrupted work done, et cetera. Can you take us through what successful boundaries look like? Well, the, the concept you're talking about from the book Zones is about being able to find islands in the stream of communication. We have texts, we have IMs, we have people walking into your office, phone calls. So there's all this communication, but to create an island where you don't have to multitask. Because multitasking, studies have shown that it like, can drop your IQ by 10 to 15 points. So trying to carve out that time. And it's interesting, you've, you've focused on creating boundaries because in order to be successful at creating these little islands where we can actually focus, it's really important to communicate. Mm -hmm. So to communicate with the people around you that I need this focus time, it's going to help me to do better work, you know, telling your boss it's going to help me do better work, you know, or telling your coworkers. And the other part is your coworkers probably want the same thing too. So having that communication about how can we all get more work done without interrupting each other as much and still answer each other's questions but not constantly be interrupting each other, that's a gift to everybody. Yeah, I struggle with that. 
So here's a, a simple, you ask for a simple example. Work. Let me give you a simple example. So in, in, with my team, I'll say, if it's something that I can address in sort of 24 hours, send me an email. But if you need an answer right away, text me. But don't be texting me for every single thing, because then there's no triage, right? Mm -hmm. So having a system. I worked with some nurse leaders, and the nurses who lead other nurses are the nicest people in the world. And they would say, you know, I don't want to shut my door because I want people to be able to come in and ask questions. And so one of them said, well, I'm gonna, when I do shut my door, I'm going to put a nice picture like of a sunshine or a tree and you know, say, hard at work for you. And so it's communicating. And then maybe even put post-it notes there. So if you come and my door is shut, you can leave a note and I can get back to you. you know? So the communication, not creating a wall, but having boundaries that are understood mm -hmm. is really important to be able to have those zones so you can focus. Yeah. No, it makes... And having the practicing self-restraint to not disturb others, which is something that I need to work on. I like I, to I like socialize and sit in other people's offices and derail their best laid plans. Well, some of that is important for team building, right? Well, yeah. But it's just having a balance. And so if people communicate, you know, when they're in a zone and when they're, they welcome you to come by, I would be happy if you stopped by. Yeah. I mean, but it, but I think too, you can, if you've communicated here's the situation where I would want to be interrupted. You know, under these circumstances, you can interrupt me in a zone. You can concentrate more if you know, they know when to interrupt you or not interrupt you, yeah. right? I think one thing that I struggle with, which I'm probably not alone on, is that it's impossible to find uninterrupted time at work because of meetings and drive-bys and all of that. And so I do that work at home, which then feeds the cycle of being... Exhausted. Exhausted and yeah. distracting and distractible at work. So, so it sounds like you even, you read this and you know that it's a good idea, but you still don't have, know how to implement it, right? Yeah. So maybe what you can do is get together with some of your coworkers and talk about what could we do differently. And yeah. so maybe they'll have ideas that you don't have and you can come up with something mutual. Right, which is not to jump around, but it's an intro, you brought it up, so I'm gonna go there. I loved the sort of, I don't think I have a negative outlook, but there are certain people, obviously, who do. But the the way that you sort of reverse e and the power of group brainstorm to change an, a pessimistic viewpoint. Should we? Can we just do reverse yeah, right now? Yeah, let's do reverse. Let's do reverse. It's really good. You guys want to play? <laughs> okay. So there are longer, more complicated, like the ABCD method that's in the book is a little bit more rich and complicated and it comes from the psychology literature and it's great. But this is the quick and dirty fun version, right? So reverse think of an obstacle, you can write it down if you're taking notes or just hold it in your head, an obstacle or a limit that you're facing. And write it down, think of it. It could be some examples I've had. Somebody said, my team didn't get the budget increase that I asked for, so I can't do the innovative things I want to do. Mm -hmm. A woman, I was doing a radio show, and a woman called in, and she said, I'm going to lose my house after the divorce because I can't afford it on my own. And that was a limit she was facing. So it can be anything, personal, professional. I want to get a higher degree, but I don't have money or time to go back to school. So once you've got your obstacle, your limit, I usually like to do this with an index card, and I tell people to flip over the card, and on the other side, write the opposite of that. So we're going to do reverse So the person who said, I don't have time or money to go back to school, just says, I have time and money to go back to school. And the person who says, I'm going to lose my house in the divorce, I'm going to keep my house after the divorce. Or what was the other one? I said, oh, they, I can't do innovative things. So it's, I can do innovative things with my team. 
And so the, your first reaction is, it's just not true. <laughs> you know, your brain says, you're asking me to write a lie on the second side of the card. But you write it down anyway. And what it does is it gets your brain to suspend your belief. You have all this belief in your limit. And if you could suspend your belief in that limit for a minute, what could possibly happen? Could things come out of that? And it's, it's not a magic wand. I can't guarantee that the second side will be true. But I've seen amazing things happen. Yeah, and particularly, I think your advice, too, is you gather people who can help you see options and opportunities and push you in a way that you might not, and that limiting self-belief doesn't allow you to extend. If you're talking from the first side of the card yeah. to your friends and saying, oh, I don't have any money to go back to school, but I really need that higher degree to get ahead in my career, they'll be like, yeah, let's, I, I, have, I have horrible things, too. Let's go have a beer, you know, and you commiserate on the first side of the card. But if you start talking to people on the second side of the card, you're going to hear something different. So if you're saying, you know, I really need to get a higher degree, but I don't know, you know where the money and time is. I, you know, I went to Phoenix University and I got this degree and it worked. You know, people will come out, will tell you positive things if you're, if you're looking at the second side of the card. Right. You'll hear a different conversation. And I think people inherently want to be helpful, right? I mean, that's like... Whether it's negative or positive, they'll be helpful. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's like, what's more fun than brainstorming about someone else's life? Favorite so, thing to do. So the woman... The woman who said she was going to lose her house in the divorce, actually, she heard the radio show and she emailed me afterwards. And she said, I flipped over the card. I said, I'm going to keep my house after the divorce. And I, this like, makes me want to cry because it's, it's true. She said, once I flipped over the card and I wrote that, I started to think, you know, my mother is getting older and she's okay by herself now, but in a few years she won't be. If I moved her into my house now we could afford to keep the house after the divorce. So she had a breakthrough idea just because she was willing to not own the limit for a little, she was willing to let go of her ownership of the limitation for a little while. Right, why, why do we do that? Like why are we so bought into these things that are inherently not true? I think it's fear, right? I've done this work with Microresilience since 2011 and it delves into so much rich research in positive psychology and neuroscience and psychoneuroimmunology. But at the root of it, a lot of it is helping us to move out of our fear-based thinking into our visionary thinking, into our possibility thinking. And that as our caveman programming is not to do that. It sucks us back into the fear of programming. And so the, there's like 21 different hacks in the book and all of them help you to rise to the person you want to be and not sink to the person that our adrenaline and our, our mm -hmm. hormones, our fear hormones want us to be. It also uh, felt throughout like what the other call of the book is start naming what you want not your existence, if that makes sense. And like that emotional fluency, the emotional literacy that comes when we start to actually think about what, it, what, is, what is this feeling in me? Is it envy? Is it disappointment? Is it shame? And then once you name it, you have the power to step back from it and move into a different space. Right. But if you don't name it, it just sort of takes over. Right. Yeah. And so. runs you. I mean, it runs that part of your brain. I was in Ohio and I was doing the life goals exercise out of the book with a group of women for International Women's Day. And it, it was interesting to hear women, you know, they're, they're, one of the assignments is just to write down like 10 or 20 things that you want before you die or that you want to live, be, do, or have. And women were struggling and going, I just, I haven't done this. And if we've never done it, 
how are we ever going to get there mm -hmm. if we haven't even taken the time to write down what we want out of our lives? I know. It's actually really wild. People ask me that all the time, too. Like, what do you want? What do you want to do? Where, where do you want? I'm like, I have no idea. And I, like, sit and preach this stuff, too, right? Yeah. There's fear, I think, though, about doing it. The first time that I was going to do that life goals exercise, what you do is you write down 10 or 20 things that you want to do, and then you have to prioritize and, like, pick the top five. And there's, I know for me, a fear came up that what if I pick the top five and it's not anything I'm doing? What if it shows that I'm really off track? Or what if it means I have to move to Africa? You know, like, I, I, there's fear, right? In knowing what you really want, because you might not get it if you actually knew. Right. Right? Yeah. You can't fail if you don't know. Do you find... <laughs> it's fear of failure. And I think that we or at least I do, because I have perfectionistic instincts. Like, you don't know if you're choosing right, and is this the right thing, is this not the right thing? And I think, too, what's interesting is it's like, if you don't choose the right thing, it's not going to let itself off the list, right? Does that make sense? Like, if you don't choose the right thing, it's not going to... As you're prioritizing those 20 things and circling, and you refuse to acknowledge maybe something on the edge that might be really what you want, I do feel like it's that... Thing isn't going to let you off the hook. Like, I think sometimes we worry we'll take, we'll eliminate the option that's actually the thing we really want. I see. Want. Oh, I, that's deep. I think, I think though, so there was one moment I was, this was a, a couple of years ago, I was doing a workshop and we went to break from the workshop and there was this, I remember there was this tall Indian gentleman and I'm 5'2", so he dwarfed me and he had just done the life goals exercise too and he said, I had the most amazing experience because I came into the exercise thinking I was kind of off track with my life, that I wasn't doing what I really should be doing and I wasn't where I really should be. And I did the exercise and I realized that I am on track. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have a lot more conversation with him. Things moved on. I had to do something else. But what I imagine is that he probably had so much pressure from other people, expectations that he was living through other people, you know, maybe his boss, maybe his in-laws, you know, that he had all this pressure feeling like he was supposed to be doing all these things, but when he took inventory himself, he realized he was doing what he wanted to be doing, what was real for him. Yeah. So I think you can, I think you can get clarity with it, but I think there's a lot of fear that it won't be clear, like that you'll miss something or you'll let yourself off the hook or, but I think you just have to dig into it and give yourself the time to do it. Right. Or that there's one right answer. You know? right. And the reality is we can live many lives. And it changes. That's why it's important to do it. Maybe you did it five years ago, but, you know, take some time to do it again this year. Yeah. And I think your life goals change, right? So case in point, you were like, I'm going to go be an Olympian, and then I'm going to Oxford. <laughs> I was kind of driven, like I said. Another thing in the purpose section I call values detective. And that's really fun because instead of listing your values, like I've had workshops where they ask you to list, like, what's your top goal? Is it hard work or honesty? Like, you're supposed to rate, which means more to you. Like, that makes no sense to me. So, we, values detective, we set up a set of questions, and you interview your, a partner, you can pick a friend, or, you know, somebody at work, whatever you want to do, and you interview each other, and you ask these questions, and it tells you what your values are by the way you answer the question. So, it's exploratory as opposed to making a list. And that's a really powerful exercise, too, is to see, it, it reveals for you the values that you are living, mm. not what you think they are. <laughs> right, which is probably a rude awakening. No, for most people, it's not. For most people, it's actually very affirming because goals are not like, I mean, values are not honesty, the word honesty. 
Honesty is a story about how you've lived your life. So my, my husband, his grandfather was a miller. And I didn't know this, but when you get, take your wheat into a miller to grind it into flour, they don't grind your wheat and give you that flour. They weigh your wheat and they give you the equivalent amount in flour. And so some of the millers would put a rock in the flour to cheat the farmer mm. and give them that weight. And Alan's grandfather was, had a reputation for being so honest and never putting pebbles or rocks or anything in. Farmers would drive past other mills to go to him because he was the honest miller. So that's a story about honesty and, or being an honest real estate broker. Or, you know, it's our stories that matter how we live the values mm, that are totally transcendent. Let's take a quick break. I'll be the first to tell you my skin is sensitive, and it can turn super sensitive when I least expect it, or when it's most inconvenient. And it's been like that since I was a kid, so I try to be careful with the products I use. I was excited to learn that Burt's Bees has a line of sensitive skincare, which has all the clean beauty basics covered. Everything they make is great, from convenient towelettes you can stash in your gym bag, to a face cleanser that leaves skin feeling nourished and refreshed, to their hydrating night cream but the ultimate go-to might be Burt's Bees Daily Moisturizer. It's a fragrance-free cream, which you'll appreciate if you're sensitive to fragrances too. It uses skin-friendly ingredients like cooling aloe and cotton extract. Whether you use the moisturizer after washing your face in the morning or post-shower, keep it propped up on your bedside table or pack it in your carry-on, it's a soothing self-care thing that you can look forward to using, and your skin will thank you. You can check out Burt's Bees Sensitive Skincare Collection at burtsbees.com slash skincare. One of the lead producers of our InGoop Health Summits first told us about the brand Buffy. She was an early fan of their debut product called the Cloud Comforter. It's ridiculously soft and super comfortable, which helps explain why the sleep station we created with Buffy at our last InGoop Health in New York was one of the most popular spots at Summit. What makes Buffy's comforter fluffier than any other comforter? It's covered in incredibly soft, breathable eucalyptus fabric. The unexpected part? The inside fill of the comforter is made from 100% recycled water bottles. Wild, right? Buffy estimates that every comforter keeps about 50 bottles out of landfills and oceans. So it makes for a good night's rest that you can feel good about too. If you want to try out the cloud comforter, Buffy offers a free trial for 30 nights. If you don't love it, you can return it at no cost. And you can take $20 off your Buffy comforter when you visit Buffy.co and enter code GOOP20. That's Buffy.co and enter promo code GOOP20. Let's get back to Bonnie. Back to the really tactical stuff. What's, can you explain decision fatigue and how, I mean, I think we all sort of know it, like we have a limited self-control and... Decision fatigue, the research is amazing. There's one study about judges. They were getting to hear cases for parole. And if you look at what they did during the day, your chance of getting parole first thing in the morning is like 60%. And as it gets closer to lunch and the judge is hungrier and more tired, it goes down to like 10% for an identical case your chance of getting parole is substantially less 
right before lunch than it would be if your case was heard first thing in the morning. And then it comes back, the percentages come back again after lunch, after they've had a break, and then fall again by the end of the day. And they did this with like 1,800 judges, and it's just astounding. So if you're going into court, make sure it's in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> That's Learn the takeaway there. Thing today. The doctors, though, too, doctors are more likely to give a prescription at the end of the day when they're tired. And, and so if judges and doctors who are these highly trained people to make these important decisions, the data shows how affected they are by the, how tired they are. Doesn't that tell all of us that we should be managing that better? And so making sure that we're not getting decision fatigue. And there's, there's a number of ways to manage that. One is to make fewer decisions. And we were talking about simplifying your life. Yeah. I wear colorful jackets and black clothes and black shoes because I, I was on three planes over the last three days. And I just can't think that much about whether I have shoes that match my clothes. You know, some of you, that's a nethma. I know you have 400 pairs of shoes, but for me, that's one way I simplify my decision-making so that I can use my decision-making for other things. Another thing with uh, decision fatigue is checklists. Yeah. And so people confuse. I, I always talk about checklists, and people confuse to-do lists with checklists. So a to-do list is where you write all the things you have to do, and then you check it off. But a checklist is something that you repeatedly do. So if you pack for trips, for business trips, you know, have a checklist of what goes in your suitcase so that you can, you use that same list over and over and over again. Some people have checklists for going out the door in the morning to go to work or going on a vacation, you know, what do you need to bring? So just things that you do repeatedly, having that list, you're not rethinking it every single time, saves a tremendous amount of decision energy too. I was talking about this with a manager and he said, one of the things I do repeatedly is have a meeting every month with all my direct reports to see where they're at. And he said, why don't I make a checklist for what I want each one of them to bring to that meeting and give it to them so that they bring it so I don't even have to manage that. So there's just, mm. it comes from Atul Gawande. Did you see his book on checklists? Mm -hmm. In the medical field, it's so powerful that it really saves lives to use. Because they're smart people. Doctors and nurses think they know. Oh, yeah, I'll just look at the case and I'll know. But checklists actually catch a lot of things and, and just let them use their brain power for the more important things. Right. That's true. I, I don't know why I resist simplifying in those. I am getting more simple in my wardrobe. I just, I can, I'm too tired to put, and I'm not that good at putting together outfits. But the basic thing there, and, and a big power of the micro-resilience too, is if you understand the science of what we're trying to do, you can make up your own solutions. So part of what we're trying to do with your brain is to say, it, your prefrontal cortex is an amazing device, but if you overtire it, it's not going to do a very good job. So if you can save that great device for the most important tasks and try not to be using it to just hold all kinds of thoughts in your head and just kind of memorize things, try not to, to use it for everything and save it. So checklists, you know, fewer decisions, exercising in the morning, just even a little bit when you know you're going to have to use your brain power a lot during the day. There's lots of different tips about how to do that. But the basic theme is use your highest brain for its highest purposes. And you'll seem smarter. Well, that's something. What's the secret to prioritizing effectively? Well, prioritizing takes all the complex functions of your prefrontal cortex and tries to use them all at the same time. So you're thinking about a whole bunch of different activities. You're thinking about what they involve. You know, you're imagining something you haven't done. You're imagining how it's going to get done. And then you've got to decide which one comes first. So it's decision fatigue. It's imagination fatigue. It's all those things at once. So 
prioritize prioritizing. So if you have to do prioritizing work, do it early in the day when you're not fatigued, create a zone so you're not being interrupted while you're prioritizing. You know, it's, that is one of your highest brain forms, so treat it as such, and it will work a lot better. And then, but, but even the act of prioritizing, I did a podcast with Greg McEwen, he wrote Essentialism, and he's like, the thing about prior, like the word priority is it's the one thing. And we, in our culture, like now we have priorities. How do you... Is that really just a values call? Like what, or is there, do you have any You know, it's interesting. So I have a treadmill desk. So it's a standing desk and I put a treadmill underneath it. And I have other desks that I use too, because I don't always want to use that desk. Everyone needs like five desks, guys. (laughs) But when I look at my schedule, I try to look at what can I do on the desk. Like I can answer email on the desk, but if I've got to design a new workshop, I'm not going to do it on the treadmill because that's multitasking. I can't do that at the same time. So if I have some sort of low quality, easy things to do, I can do it or a conference call where I'm just going to sit and listen for an hour. You know, I can do that. So one of the ways I prioritize is just look at my schedule about how can I fit in things in a certain way that's going to maximize my health and my well-being. Another, another cut is sort of looking at purpose. So one of the hacks is schedule renew. So looking at how does your schedule encompass purpose and where can you add a little purpose, where you can you take away some of the drains. So there's lots of ways to prioritize that aren't just about get it done. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you no, can be totally. prioritizing for your own personal power. I thought you had... This is a little bit of a segue, but I thought you had really interesting words about micromanaging, too, because I think that's a tendency where we, many of us overwork, right? Right, and micromanaging means you're taking on all the decision-making for yourself, and you're not letting anyone else have it. Well, is that going to lead to decision fatigue? I think so, you know? So being able to let other people make more decisions is going to mean you have less decision fatigue, and decisions are going to get made better. Although it's hard to believe that. We'd like to think we're the only ones that can make decisions. I know. And, but it's, that's really hard, I think, for maybe not, it's probably not even just women, but that relinquishing of control and that trust. Like, do you, how do you coax people to let other people make those? Well, the bigger, the bigger issue, and I talk about this a lot too, is being a helpable person. Are you a person that can be helped? Mm. And we tend to... I. I struggle with that. I'm the, I'm the one-legged black woman. You know, I spent my whole life proving that I could do it all myself, right? So to be a helpable person seems counterintuitive. But I was talking to a Hollywood star maker, an agent who made all these stars famous, and he said, that's the key. That's the key difference between somebody who can sing and dance really well and somebody who becomes a superstar. Superstar is just the person who got more help. So the more helpable person can do more and can, you can be larger. You can have more impact. But it might take a little patience. If you give some people some decision authority, you might have to coach them a little bit. You might have to you know, help them get ready. But it's an investment that will make you larger than if you just hold on to everything. Yeah. So how, like, who helps you? And how do you accept help? Everybody. I have, my husband is here, Anne is here uh, on my team, and I have a, an amazing team. But it's been a struggle. I was, I was sexually abused as a child for many years, and I just was very shut down. And everything that I say is things that I had to learn, and I struggled. When I say be helpable, I struggled to learn to be helpable. I have to tell you, I'm so excited to be here at Goop. 
I, um, in the green room, I met Dana, the intuitive, who yeah. like helped me decrease a block that I've had from my childhood, you know, and it's, it's just been so powerful. And I'm excited. I'm so excited. We made a special coaching tool to help good people so that if people go to getupfaster.com, you can learn more about it if, if that's an option that you want to you Because we can only do go so far with this, but if people want to go farther. So where do they go? Get up faster? Getupfaster.com. And so it's a special, we, our company does a lot of big corporate training with micro resilience. We don't, we don't do a lot of one-on-one with people. And so this is just for goop. So let us know how you like it. What are we going to find? Or is that the secret? What are we going to find? Oh, so it's a, it's a self-paced coaching tool that you can sign up for. So I'll take you, I I put together some videos and things that take you through it. And then we're going to have a a Q and A like group coaching session at the end that you can do too. It's just a way to help you put it in practice. Right. Cool. Thank you. So, yeah. So the other, you know, let's go back to the optimism, pessimism dilemma because true. Like there, I certainly have people in my life who just have a more, and, and no judgment or value assigned to it, just have a more pessimistic point of view. How do you coach people besides reversey, which I love, but how do you coach them towards a more... With pessimism and optimism, there, there's a really great tool, and it comes out of the research from Marty Seligman, who mm-hmm. did positive psychology, and he says himself he did this work because he's very pessimistic, and so he often we teach what we need to learn, right? But he has a lot of research, and, and they talk about PPP. If you're talking about something bad that happened, and you're saying that it's permanent, prevalent, or personal, then you're helpless. So Marty Seligman actually says... Pessimism is learned helplessness. When you're pessimistic about things and you say, you know, if you lose your job and you say, well, there's no jobs anywhere and, you know, well, my bosses always hate me and, you know, it's just not going to get any better, then you're helpless. You can't do anything. And so those are signs. If you're attributing a problem and saying it's permanent, it's not going to change, it's prevalent, it's everywhere, and it's personal, then you can't fix it. So the the quick way to deal with that, if you notice other people are doing that, or if you notice you're doing it yourself, you can do CCC. So you ask yourself three C questions is, what are the choices I have in this situation? So you always have some choice in this situation. What is the challenge in this situation? What can I say? Like, so if you lost your job, The challenge might be, find a better job. I didn't like that job anyway. I could find a job more aligned with my values. Or maybe I'm not going to find as high a paying job, but I could find a job that's more community service oriented, you know. I actually know somebody who did that after the economy went so bad in in 09 in New York. She was in in investment banking, and she went to Nicaragua and worked for a couple of years, and now she's at Google, you know. So it's fabulous. But the, the third C is, what is my commitment and that goes back to values, is what are my values in this situation? You know, and it's, if you lose your job and you have kids, you don't want to model just sitting on the couch and giving up. You know, you want to model that you're going to go out and, and find something better and, and keep working hard and keep, you know, showing up in the morning and, and being brave. You could run that through so many different examples, not just losing a job, but... The, you give us another one? <sighs> the thing that popped in my head was like divorce, like going yeah. through a divorce. And so... What are your choices? You know, you might think, oh, I didn't want to be divorced, but you still have choices is do I stay in this town or do I move to another one? You know, do I start dating now or later? <laughs> you, it, the choice, the research around choice is so powerful. If you're in a meeting, sitting in a meeting and somebody says something, somebody takes credit for your idea, one of your choices might be I'm going to lift my leg under the table. 
And just doing that, recognizing that I have a choice to do that, it can just de-stress your brain a little bit. You know, I have a choice that I could leave this meeting or I could stay here, you know, and I'm actually choosing to stay here. Just recognizing that you have choices does some powerful things in your, in your immune system as, and in your body. So choices, if you're going through a divorce, what are your uh, challenges? You know, well, and actually, when I went through my divorce, part of the challenge was to grow. And both me and my ex-husband chose to grow. And we went to some therapy together. We went to some courses together. We both grew. We both became, we still got divorced, but we both became better people in the process and were able to, we, ha, we had to continue to co-parent. So that was important. And then what is your commitment? What are your values? So again, you know, what were we showing our daughter in that process? And you may not have control over your ex and what values they're displaying, but you have control over what values you're displaying and yeah. what you're teaching by example. Let's take a quick break. For a while now, my skincare obsession has been Goop Glow. It's our morning skin super powder that's made with six potent antioxidants. You just mix it into water and drink. It tastes like oranges and lemon verbena. I drink Goop Glow every day and I swear by it. But the Goop Glow collection is growing, so now I have another obsession. This one is a weekly thing. It's called Goop Glow Glycolic Peel. If you are remotely as into exfoliating as I am, I think you're going to be curious about this. Goop Glow Glycolic Peel was inspired by a chemical peel that I used to get from my dermatologist. It would completely transform my skin. My team at Goop developed a new pad that contains a whopping 15% glycolic acid for intense exfoliating. Oh, and we ran clinical tests on these too to prove that it works. One side of the pad is really soft. I use it on my face and wait for the tingling feeling to come. The other side of the pad is more like a gauze texture, which I like for my neck, chest, and shoulders. After I use the Goop Glow Glycolic Peel, I head to bed. When I wake up in the morning, I can completely see the difference. Fresher, softer, smoother, glowy skin. It is extremely satisfying. If you want to try Goop Glow Glycolic Peel, and I know you do, Head to goop.com slash glowpeelpodcast. And if you order one box of the Glow Peel, we'll include a five-pack of Goop Glow Morning Skin Super Powder on us. Just enter promo code GLOWPEEL. That's goop.com slash glowpeelpodcast. Order one box of the Goop Peel. Enter promo code G-L-O-W-P-E-E-L. And we'll get you a five-pack of Goop Glow on us as well. Let's get back to Bonnie. So I love this idea, and I know we only have a few minutes left. What's a joy kit, and how do you make one? So in the book, we talk about a joy kit, but we kind of renamed it a first aid kit for your attitude, because that just was so clear for people. So I actually did a TED Talk on this. So if you want to get more into it, you can look up my TED Talk, too. But the idea is that you have first aid kits for a cut or a burn, why not have a first aid kit for your attitude? You know stuff's going to happen. You're going to have a bad day. So why not be prepared? And you can put things in it. So you thought about this. What would you put in your first aid kit for your attitude? 
pictures of pictures my kids. Although kids. I know that those are you're blind, like you're more blind to those. Well, no, what, uh, and my husband loves to give this tip as okay. my co-author too. That if you have at your desk, you have pictures of family and things like that, you stop seeing those after a while. So the idea is, you can have pictures of your kid, but just your kids, but just put them in a box or a bag or something that they're the special pictures you only take out when you really need to do it. So you have different pictures. Right. That makes sense. Okay. So when my daughter was a teenager, I had a picture of her when she was four in my first aid kit, right? Because you have a teenager. She's like, I totally get that. I totally get that. But you could have somebody I know has bottles of sand from vacations they went on. Some people do it totally digitally. So you could have a folder on your phone that has thank you notes. You know, on days when you feel like no one appreciates you, you could go back and look at old thank you notes or quotes. You could have inspiring quotes and, and pictures. And so you can totally do it digitally. Does gratitude figure in that? Speaking of thank you notes, because I know... You know, I have done this. I have helped fourth graders make their first aid kit for their attitudes. You can do this with your family. You can do this with your kids. Get it. The idea of a first aid kit. That's an owie. So with them, I like to give them a blank thank you note and say, if you're feeling bad, write a thank you note to somebody else, and it'll shift your focus onto that. Isn't the research on sending people thank you notes who have affected your life, doesn't it positively affect oh, your mood so for like three months. there's so much great research about gratitude. That yeah. It's, it's very life-giving. And again, you know, it takes you out of your lizard fear, a scarcity brain, and puts you into your possibilities and, you know, vision and what's great about the world. And so gratitude, yeah, just helps you make that shift. This might be a curveball, but you said the word scarcity. Do you think that we will ever be at a time where women don't feel like there's that scarcity is sort of at the root of, particularly in the corporate world, that scarcity exists. Does that make sense? I I mean, I I just hear it on so many dimensions. I mean, in the Me Too world is scarcity of places where we feel safe, (laughs) you know, scarcity of job opportunities. I do a lot of research on women in tech, not just more women in tech, but how do we advance women into leadership in tech? And so, you know, scarcity of women leaders in tech, you know, there's so many ways I'm hearing that, but we've made a lot of progress. I think one of the things that happens is we get so focused by the news on all the problems Mm -hmm. that if you look at the research of how much the world has improved in the last hundred years, if you really grasp how much we've improved the world in the last hundred years, you would be so excited about what we can do in the next 50, you know, that hunger has been reduced around the world. There are not as many people starving to death as there used to be. Violence has been reduced around the world. You know, there's, there's a lot of things that are better. I'm not saying everything is great, not by any stretch, but we have the capacity to dramatically improve things, mm-hmm. and we should stay focused on that. Thanks for joining my conversation with Bonnie St. John. I have been thinking a lot about how to apply zones in my own life to control my ability to be creative despite all the pressures of working in a very busy office. To learn more about Bonnie, head to bonniestjohn.com. And of course, I highly recommend you get a copy of her book, Micro Resilience. As always, we appreciate you listening and we love hearing your feedback. Please rate, review, and share with your friends and just tap subscribe if you want to keep up with new episodes. Talk soon.